it's been so long since I did a podcast that I forgot how much I enjoy doing it and I wasn't sure that anybody was much listening to it because I'm not one to ever go check numbers or or care even about that so much but um, I kept on getting messages from people telling me to do it again so I'm doing it again and I suppose I'm going to keep doing it as long as I'm not doing uh, family things and thank you to those people that encouraged me and continue to encourage me in my writing and podcasting. I appreciate it greatly. Um, So here we are. I've left it until the evening to calm down from the intense frustration of watching that game against Fulham. What a sloppy game. And I think I was just bothered mostly because sloppy is not a word that I have pinned on this Arteta team in quite a long time, maybe ever. I don't think Sloppy's ever been the problem, but boy, oh boy. Um, Now, of course, I wasn't there, and I know the conditions are a factor, but I think before the rain started hammering down, we were were sloppy. I mean, we were certainly sloppy from the first whistle. So, um, anyway... Try to, um, or I'm trying to, trying to, going to try to be a little more uh, lucid and calm with my analysis here, and hopefully it makes some sense. Uh, wanted to talk about Fabio Vieira. Got a, a positive for him. He uh, most certainly turned the game, and you know he is, he's all about technique, isn't he? He obviously isn't offering anything physically and. It's interesting how the club have clearly told him not to put on the muscle like they have the other players, um, probably because of the role that he plays and the creativity and um, trying to understand that. But I, that's the part of the game I understand the least is the is the physical, the, the weight training side of, of football. Not going to get into that too much. But um, he offers us something... I know it's totally different. We have other players that have that final ball. But he seems to break code almost. When he's at his best, you know, he's playing differently than all the others out there. Sometimes I watch Martin Odegaard, who has that same quality, and he can maybe, maybe this is harsh, but he can get sometimes a little lost in the ticky-tacker part of playing around, and he's so incredibly good at retaining the ball in tight areas, him and Saka, um, but forgetting what brought him to the club and what we loved about him when he initially got here, which was that final ball. But we don't see much of that with him. If there's an improvement in Martin Odegaard's game... It's been in goal scoring. I mean, that's the most obvious improvement and maybe that's the most important one he needed to make uh, without Arsenal having a um, prolific centre-forward and choosing to score their goals in group, um, which is probably smarter. Um, Anyway, this isn't about Martin Odegaard. Vieira uh, has elite quality. And try not to use that word elite too much because elite is, you know, top 25 to 50 players in the world have elite quality. 
Um, they might not be an elite player. He is not that yet, that's for sure. But he has that top-level quality. He can do the things that other people either can't do or find very difficult. It seemed to be somewhat easier for him. Uh, the weight of a pass, uh, the accuracy, um, and for such a little guy, the smallest guy in our squad, he proves uh, what I tell younger kids and coach them all the time in when they shoot, that you don't have to be a big boy, big girl, in order to shoot a soccer ball hard and accurately. Uh, and he is a classic example of that. He is arguably the best at shooting from distance, and that's breaking the code, isn't it, somewhat? Because uh, even though Arteta's Arsenal do shoot from distance, where Wenger's Arsenal very rarely did... Um, we it's not a main method of... It's almost a second thought, isn't it? We want to uh, create something a little hard, more high percentage, perhaps. And uh, every once in a while, we will shoot. But as I said in last week's blog, uh, if you want to simplify football or simplify coaching, maybe what you need to do is talk to each player individually and remind them that on the attacking side of the game they need to produce what their gifts um, are and um, offer that to the team and if they do that they've had a good game and we have players uh, you know Havertz is offering the aerial threat hasn't come to fruition yet. Uh, I think that will. And when he offers that, he will stand on top of the hill because he's sort of alone in offering that. Uh, we've talked about what Odegaard offers. Saka offers consistency in decision-making and such threat um, inside the penalty area, cutting in, uh, and on and on. Uh, Vieira offers technique in shooting and in passing. Uh, so very happy for him. Would have absolutely loved for that bicycle kick, scissors kick, sorry, to have gone in because he deserved it. Uh, and it was such fantastic technique. But unfortunately, like almost every other shot in the game, it went straight at the keeper. And we all know that Leno has great hands, doesn't drop anything. So... Um, one of those days, perhaps. Uh, I wanted to talk about two um, two parts of the game that I noticed uh, needed improvement. One, uh, maybe in the short term. You know, my, uh, my team, I'm coaching, but I'm also managing my son's team. And managing in America means you're the paperwork guy. You're not actually the coach. I know I'm confusing you, but uh, I'm sort of a little bit of both uh, for Max's soccer team. His team has two groups, and uh, uh, the A team has gone to Cookville, Tennessee to play in a tournament. And I let the kids go to tournaments, even though I'm against the idea of tournaments in America, because it's what they like to do and their experience well, the experience is theirs, it's not mine. And if they want to do it, I have to put their wishes in front of mine. Um, what happens in America is there are 
two, three-month seasons. They don't play in the winter because winters uh, are normally too brutal. So um, they pack in the same amount of games in five or six months that the British, for example, those kids play in nine months, but they have to pack it all together. So they go to these tournaments and they play at least three and sometimes five or six games in two days. Utterly ridiculous. And over my time living here, I've uh, gotten uh, a variety of teams to finals in these tournaments. And normally the kids want to go home. They don't want to play in it. They're exhausted. We spend the pre-game of the final stretching them excessively to make sure they don't cramp up. So you get the picture here. And the reason I'm telling you all of this is I've seen so many second games in tournaments that I recognise when I see one that Arsenal are playing. And that game against Fulham looked like it was the second game of our day. It looked like we'd played already. We'd already played at 8 o'clock in the morning and for whatever stupid reason, we had to play again at 3 o'clock. You know, the, the sloppiness um, is part of that. Just the lack of zip and energy. The ball movement was slower than Fulham. Fulham were one touching it around us in their half of the field. Golly, it's just, it was a little painful to watch. And I don't know what that is. Is that overtraining? Is that what we saw in pre-season where they're actually doing a session in the morning before games for the sake of fitness and the long-term goal of being the fittest team in the league and such? But that's what it looked like. The other thing I wanted to talk about, I think, is Arsenal's biggest problem and has been ever since... um, Ever, maybe. I don't remember... Well, maybe back in the early Wenger days um, and the George Graham days, this was not an issue, which was the six-yard box. I think it would benefit Arsenal if they made the decision to pack up the ideas uh, that they had for training for a week, for a whole week in preparation for a game, whichever game, and decided that they were going to just practice in the penalty area. Because Arsenal have mastered uh, having the most possession in every single game that we play, probably bar the City game. And even when we play City at home... I think we had more possession than they did and certainly weren't lacking in that regard. So maybe we park all our other good ideas and desires to perfect things that are actually rather good. And this Fulham game was a classic example. I mean, we didn't, you know, give Fulham too many needless chances and give the ball away in a half. We just don't do that. Or in the midfield, Declan Rice... I thought he had 100% passing accuracy the entire game. Max told me it was in the first half he had 100%, but still, wow. So, you know, park it. Put those ideas away. Stick them in a briefcase. Put them in the safe. They're valuable. Let's do it later. The six-yard box is a problem at Arsenal Football Club. It's been a problem for far too long. And it's a lot easier not to solve, but to get significantly more threatening at. 
then we are making it. Um, as good as Saka is, as good as Martinelli are, is, we are not creating enough from their penetration into the box, beating the player, looking up, final pass, bang, goal. We're not seeing that enough. And honestly, if you watch almost any other Premier League game, you get the feeling that they are going to score in far less uh, opportunities than we're creating. But in those same zones, the short cross, the cross across the six-yard box, how many tappings do Arsenal score? where it's just the player, the ball and the goal. And they're, they're there if you want to do it. And honestly, it's just almost like a session of keep away that they do almost every practice, but in a smaller area. Bigger than the Rondo, but in a tight, compact, outnumbered situation. Not easy to score. It's not easy but it's definitely more easy to be threatening and make the other team feel comfortable. And I think that they don't feel particularly uncomfortable, and that's nuts. Against Bucky Osaka and Gabriel Martinelli, they're doing all the hard work in getting into position, and because of the poor movement in particular of the players in the box, it's just too complicated. Oh, my and I swear, we could have won the Premier League last year and maybe could win it this year just off the back of a major improvement in this area. Now, how do you do it? Well, a variety of different ways. First of all, the advantage that you have as the attacking team is you know what you're about to do or you have a far better idea than they do. And so even though they outnumber you two to one they don't necessarily know where you're going to put the ball. So you have that advantage. When you're running into the box, most defenders run into the box and continue running. They want to protect their goal. They want to be in and around the six-yard box and they want to be there to save the day. If you run in and stop, you've instantly created a passing lane. That's Arguably the simplest way. We do that sometimes. Um, what I think we suffer from is a couple of things. We don't have a player and haven't had a player for a long time since Robin Van Persie that makes two runs, that jerks the defender around, steps to his left as if he's going to the back post and darts to the front. Maybe Giroud, it's not unfair to Giroud, but Giroud was the king of the front post. And he would faint and move. He wasn't quick, but he didn't have to be. He was quick of thought and he was deceptive and he sent the defender the wrong way. Couple of steps to the front post, dart to the back post, dart to the middle, wherever the space is, wherever the opportunity is. But if you just move in one direction only, you've made the defender's job so much easier. And honestly, it's lazy. That's really what it is. So that, I think... Um, is the main problem. And then the second issue is spreading the defenders out. They seem to, our opponents seem to frame the six-yard box, have somebody on the side of the six-yard box trying to block 
whatever's coming in, and we hit that guy too often. The other centre-backs around the top of the six-yard box, knowing that we don't really successfully go through the six-yard box, which we should. So you have to split these guys up in order to create gaps. And so you need... If you're not going to have your centre-forward penetrate the six-yard box, you have to have your winger on the opposite side make a diagonal run into the six-yard box. But somebody has to penetrate the six-yard box for a tap-in, even as a decoy, even to make them think, and to pull one or two defenders back there so somebody else has freedom. But we don't seem to do that. Um, And for us organized as we are and well coached as we are in defending attacking all of it we look a little clueless honestly when we get into the penalty area done the hard work beaten the man here comes the short cross nothing and again i don't want to be extreme we do score off them sometimes we it's just our our talent and our organisation outside the box isn't replicated inside the box. And I'm not expecting us necessarily to score more. Well, I am, but but just to look more threatening. I mean, we're about to play a team next Sunday who my entire life have scored bucket loads of tap-ins. Manchester United whether it was Van Nistelrooy or Rooney or whoever it was, is, midfielders running from deep, they seem to value that simple tapping in the six-yard box. And the last thing I'll say is, if in doubt, it's what I tell my team, if you're not sure where to put it, smash the ball as hard as you can at the inside leg of the closest defender. Because they have to make a decision. If they stick their leg out, it's probably an own goal. If they don't, then they're taking a risk that somebody behind them isn't going to put the ball in the net. Okay, that's enough on that. All right, transfers. Um, It's coming up to the deadline. The Gabriel situation, my opinion, is that there's two things going on. He's not playing. I think it has to be because of a head being turned or Arteta's just pissed at his agent or him or both about this Saudi Arabia thing or Real Madrid, whatever it is, I think there's something in that personal opinion. I also see that if you invert Thomas Party, which is what we've done three games in a row, and then the back four becomes a back three and everyone shifts around, then Saliba is in the middle, which is where he's best. And if you put Saliba... On the right of a back three, he ends up in the channels and he's nowhere near as effective in the channel as he is in the centre. So that tactically makes sense as to why Gabriel hasn't been playing as much. If you start Zinchenko and you invert Zinchenko, then Gabriel can play as the left-sided centre-back and shift over and still keep Saliba in the middle. So when Zinchenko backs, comes back in the team, I think you see Gabriel. I hope we see Gabriel. I hope Arsenal aren't going to look at that big chunk of money they could get for him and take it. Because he 
is a key part of our team. And he is a game winner. I mean, he's been a game winner at the attacking end of the field, but that's not what we're all thinking of. It's just that that guy's a warrior. And warriors, you know, since the days of Puyol, uh, are just harder to find. And he seems to love defending. And maybe that's the number one quality for a defender. Okay, players coming in. Um, what I said about Max's suggestion, I think, is got a lot of truth to it as to why we haven't been pursuing a right winger. I do wonder if the plan is to rest Saka and play Jesus. So that, because Arteta seems to like Eddie, and Eddie is getting slowly better and better and better and scoring more different types of goals and making himself into a more rounded player. So if he's going to play more, then Jesus is going to need to get on the field, which would be a rotation for Saka. That's an option. Of course, I'm okay with that. He he was a fantastic uh, uh, right winger at Manchester City and scored plenty of goals and was frequently in the team. Um, so, so there may be that. I, I keep going back to the fact that Arteta has um, said in the past he'd rather have a small, compact squad of players that he wants to play. So that makes me think maybe we don't go into the market. We we trust our fluid, versatile attacking options. But I think what everybody wants is they want Saka to get a rest. And they want us to have somebody that we trust, but more importantly that he trusts to start games, not just to come on for Saka, but to start games where we think, oh, we've still got a chance here. If Saka doesn't play, we're not done for, which I think is over-exaggerated anyway. I have been wondering about the Jared Bowen thing at West Ham, and I had somebody shoot that down and say to me, West Ham are not going to sell their two best players to Arsenal in one window, and so I shut it down too. But when Caduce came into West Ham, I thought, well, that's Jared Bowen's position. And then my son put me right and he said, Dad, Gerald Bone will play centre forward. He did last season for West Ham. So I'm not so sure about that one. Um, there's some interesting opportunities on the market. I, I, if I was to take a, a guess, I think Ansu Fati might be the one that Arsenal go for. Um, and for whatever reason, they've had to wait on that. Um, I think he's been deciding whether he wants to stay or go. And Barcelona, of course... Um, seemed to leave everything to the last minute, including registering players. But, you know, he was a year or so ago considered one of the best young wingers in the world. So that would be an exciting option. Uh, Samuel Illing Jr. at Juventus apparently is surplus to requirements. He's 19 and a fantastic prospect. Uh, You may not have heard of him. He's a British guy, actually went to Juventus and actually played quite a few minutes last season. But... Um, so that's something to take a look at. Um, but I wonder, I wonder what's going to happen with that. Um, and I wonder, of course, about the centre-back situation. Per Schurz, the Dutchman at Torino that we've been linked with. Six foot three, very dominant, quick, good positionally, good option. Be very happy if he came in. Um, so I wonder if we'll see that. And... Um, I look at what Chelsea, this is my final thought, I look at what Chelsea do bringing in all these young players and planting them all over Europe. I don't think they manage their careers too well because there's too many of them, but you can't not like them uh, making cheap 
purchases from uh, teams that think that five million is a whole lot of money and not being too concerned whether they make a profit on them because it's only five million, I, I, I'm all for that. But uh, I say that to say this, uh, this purchase would not be five million, I don't think. And maybe you've heard of this guy, you've certainly heard of his dad, but maybe the best young up-and-coming midfielder in South America right now is Fernando Redondo's son, Federico Redondo. Um, now, I would imagine that he's going to go to a big club. That seems to be the trend for the very, very best South American players. The big clubs take them and the player is foolish and sits on the bench of the big club or just gets loaned out, loaned out, loaned out, moved around, much like Odegaard did for forever, uh, and there are many examples, but I encourage you to take a look at Federico Redondo because uh, I would take a stab and say that he's going to be a world star one day, much like his daddy was. Um, I actually met his dad on the set of an Adidas commercial that I did back in 96 or 98. Uh, met a lot of uh, footballers uh, doing that commercial as a body double for Zinedine Zidane. Well, did you know that? Uh, anyway, that's another day. But um, his son is special. And I wonder if Arsenal should do what Chelsea have been doing and um, go for a player like that. We'll see that in the final few days, the transfer window, us buying a South American and either loaning them back or letting them go play in the Dutch league or wherever. Um, one for the future. But I thought you might be interested in that. Anyway, this has been a long podcast for the first one back and it's 10.35pm in Tennessee and it's time to go. Cheerio.